to Wrong Opinions Only with your host Justin and Kayla. And we are, what, three days post-slap when we're recording this, yes, Kayla? Yes, time is now relative to pre-slap and our lives post-slap. Well, that would both be P.S. and P.S. Yes. though. So it yes. needs to be before slap and after okay. slap, yep, I yep. think. Yeah. I'm adaptable. That's just how we now understand things in pop culture. Yes, that is how time is now. And I am just fully into the discourse around all things slap and slap adjacent. And uh, I think I'll be that way for a little while, not going to lie, as things keep coming up and uh, new pieces of the puzzle get put together. Yeah, I mean, when one of the biggest kind of pop culture events happens live when 15 million people are watching, then I think people are going to talk about it for a while. Did you see the ratings, by the way, of that? Yes. It was like they were 9 million or something pre-slap, post-slap. It went up to like 18 or something. Yep. Oh, yeah. So Oscars, you know... What can I say? I don't know. I, I, again, my mind is just consumed with the slap. But thankfully, this is not going to be a podcast of only slapping. I just have to say. Which we could do a we, podcast. We could do. Yeah. We could do. Um, but I'll let the rest of the world kind of handle that. This time, we're talking about our movie of the month, which is going to be White Savior Films that I picked last month out of the hat. Yeah, so this was an interesting category that we picked out. I think it was, it made it a little more fun. It wasn't just, hey, an action movie or a horror movie. It's, okay, we need to find a movie with a specific theme. And then do we agree that our films actually fit within this theme? So I'm very intrigued to see where this conversation goes today. I, I agree. I like uh, anything with a good a good discussion and nuance to it too as well. Um, so I'm going to put on my academia hat a little bit as we kind of Talk about how do you define a white savior film? You know, what are, are they a thing of the past? Are they still prevalent? You know, what what makes them inherently problematic? You know, um, I think those are some questions that maybe, you know, right off the top of your head. And then I think sometimes you need to think about some of the films that fit this genre or how people put this certain films in that genre. And like you said, does it fit? Does it not? You know, what what is it all about? And so <clears throat> as I put on my academia hat. I want to start off by mentioning a book that I read some chapters of in kind of preparation for this discussion. It's called The White Savior Film. It's by Matthew Hewley. It is... You read a book in preparation for this podcast? Yeah, I read books. Yeah. Wow. K-reader, not yeah, K-writer. You know, huh? no, no. Hey. It's a mix, you know? Um, so in this book, he defines a white savior film as a genre in which a white messianic character saves a lower or working class, usually urban or isolated, non-white character from a sad fate. Example, a movie like The Blind Side. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about a few points made in this book and totally like, you know, jump in with different things because I was reading and kind of thinking about my own thoughts of agreement or what it's about. So one of the chapters I read kind of started off with, mentioning an episode of The View that was on after Sandra Bullock won the Oscar for The Blind Side, because there was a lot of like kind of controversy around that. Um, and Vanessa Williams was a guest on, and she said, you know, The Blind Side, it brings up a theme for black folks that, okay, here's another white family that saves a day in terms of another black story that needs a white person to come in and lift them up. That was kind of her thoughts on that moment. So, um, and I'm just going to jump in right off the bat here. I think it's kind of separated, in my mind anyway, into mm-hmm. two categories where it's pure white savior film. And then like in the blind side, that's a situation where it's based on a true story. And obviously based on a true story is kind of a big catch-all phrase that mm-hmm. 
if you take too many liberties with, then I understand kind of the criticisms about it. But if it's done like well to the true story, you know, having backlash for being a white savior film seems seems unfair to me. Perfect. And I'm going to go into a little bit of of what you brought up, too, because because that was a significant part of this chapter. Um, so then it's also mentioned uh, Barbara Walters take on it afterwards, where she disagreed and said, I have to disagree with you. It was a wonderful story. And it was a story about closeness between two races. So I don't agree with you. Right. And the chapter mentions this example of how the prism of race and cinema refracts our worldviews, right? Mm -hmm. You have two people watching the same film having a different view, right, on on what it is. And so the chapter goes on to discuss how the anxious allure is how it's phrased of saviorism is saturated in contemporary logic, right? Often guided by the logic that is separating people into redeemers, right? And in this specific case of talking about white savior films, redeemers, whites, and those who are redeemed or in need of redemption, non-whites. And that can go back to, I think, inherently colonialism and history, right? The concept of people coming into land that's not theirs and saying, this is a better way to live, this is the right way to live, right? And so I think everything kind of falls back to that in history. But um, it also included the history of white savior films, which was interesting to me, not, you know, having been able to go back in time to see where it kind of started. So it talks about how in the 1960s, um, as we all know, there was a a massive social change, contested cultural practices, right, civil rights movement, all of that in the 60s. And as a result, it's kind of became the first white savior film or what you could say was, which was To Kill a Mockingbird. Again, this is, yeah, this is kind of what's pointing out, which gave audiences the first overt cinematic take on race, right? Um, since like 1915, Birth of a Nation, or The Klansman in 1905. So that was kind of the start, you know, that film. Then came the era of black exploitation films, right? There was like that whole decade. Over 200 made it to theory, to theaters in that time span. Um, and then you're getting the next decade, right? The 80s. You're getting Cry Freedom. You're getting Mississippi Burning, Glory. Um, a dry white season in the 80s, right? So that's kind of the mm-hmm. next wave. Then you have the 1990s, Dances with Wolves, Dangerous Minds, Music of the Heart. Then 2000s, you're having Monsters Ball, Hardball, The Constant Gardener, Crash, arguably. Again, these are nuanced conversations about what it yeah. is, right? And then all the way up to recently, right? Which had uh, Green Book winning Best Picture in 2019. So it, it was good to kind of give me that history of like, what are the groupings of these films, right? And when did they kind of come about? Now, you're talking about, you know, white savior films, as that's our topic here today. What about the inverse? You know, not quite, well, black savior films, Mm -hmm. right? But what the term it goes by is uh, what I was reading an article about Green Book the other day, and it brought it up about the quote unquote magical Negro films. Yes. Which is, hey, a black guy is here to make the white man better in some way, or he's guiding him and making him a better person. So it's, it's similar in a way where it's almost the inverse of the quote unquote white savior films, but it's, I think not as big of a redemption or as big of a role as we would have the other way. And there's, there's also, yes. And and that's a good point. There's also controversy in that as well. Right. Which became the, the, 
you know, black exploitation of, of, you know, the, the friendly black character that is giving you advice. And that's the role. And that's, that's the role in a few movies of like, I'm giving you legend of bagger Vance, uh, where he's just kind of the caddy and it's Will Smith. So maybe perfect time to mention it. <laughs> yeah. There, the, and, and again, there's, there's nuances, I think to a lot of, to some of these films and, to blanket one thing, you know, a lot of times it's good or bad, right? And I think a lot of times it's what makes this bad and can you enjoy a bad thing is a bad thing inherently. You just, is there a be all end all, you know? And so I think that with some of these films and kind of how it's portrayed, it just goes back to like, what is the intention, right? And to me, I think maybe we can agree that the intention of, of these films is to make the audiences feel good inherently, like... In ideal mind, that's the mindset of the creators of these films, is they're trying to make a movie that makes you feel good when you watch it, right? Yep, correct. Um, and so, in this chap, in this book, I've read kind of like what resonates, right? Like what what is making you feel good in these movies? And it mentions, um, you know, this is a direct quote: whether helping people of color who cannot or will not help themselves teaching non-whites right from wrong or framing the white savior as the only character able to recognize these moral distinctions, these films show whites going the extra mile across the color line. In a climate in which many whites believe they are victimized, feel fatigued by complaints of racial inequality, and hold a latent desire to see evidence of a post-racial era of reconciliation, films that demonstrate a messianic white character certainly resonate. And there are there are a lot of movies that that feel more clear in that picture, I think, than others. And maybe some of the films we're going to talk about later, it's not as, you know, uh, Freedom Riders yeah. is, is the most poignant that I can kind of relate to something I've seen in my lifetime that I was like, oh, this is like hitting all the things Yep, um, is what I think of. But it's kind of like what's resonating, right? And I feel like in this current social climate where it's a lot of like, you know, when it mentioned the complaints of racial inequality and looking for evidence of a post-racial era. I, I, you know, some of the discourse I see sometimes is that like that was in the past, this is now. Right. Um, and I think that speaks to why kind of these films, like why they still fit kind of today, because it's still an opinion that many people have. Um, and that's why seeing films like this may kind of resonate in that way. Um, it also mentions, you know, producers, critics, and audiences often present these films as, straightforward and impartial narratives, right? About heroic characters, intercultural friendships, and the humanistic struggle to overcome daunting odds, right? It's not relatable right about that. Right off the top of your head, that whole thing there? Yes, yeah. yes. Um, right? Because inherently, yeah. right, they're heroic people. They're intercultural friendships, right? Color friendship on Disney. The Just overcoming odds in general is something relatable to most people um, and is interesting to watch, right? And usually based on a true story, like you're, like you mentioned. Um, a lot of times, some of these movies are inherently what happened. If they're staying true to, you know, the events, you know, some films, of course, can take liberties. But I say the big namers usually are fitting the story pretty well. Yep. Um, and getting family input. Um, but it mentioned that there are sites of purposeful ideological labor and kind of explanations about race, so normalized as a common sense, that you're not recognizing what it's doing, because you're seeing, like, what a great story, right? Mm -hmm. These two different people or groups or whatever the film's kind of showing, they're overcoming odds, they're working together, inherently you're getting that kind of good feeling. And so what's kind of, 
what is that doing necessarily is the question I had thinking about white savior films. Like if a movie is people coming together, working through something, like what is, what is that telling us that might be problematic, I guess, is a question I had thinking about this. Um, and I'll just end on this because, um, you know, I recommend you check out this book. Like I said, it had some very interesting thoughts, you know, on this discussion when you're thinking about kind of formulating your own opinions. Mm-hmm. But it said, during a time when some perceive an assault on white racial superiority, mainstream media narratives of triumphant white do-gooders should not surprise anyone. As the Atlantic's Tiju Cole writes from... Um, Invisible Children to Ted, the fastest growth industry in the U.S. is the white savior industrial complex. Such stories, especially mass-produced, reviewed, consumed cinema, appear to support our collective reinterpretation of whites as sentimental interracial benefactors. No longer so we are told are whites the racists of Jim Crow. Now they stand on the side of racial righteousness. White actors such as Tom Cruise as advisor to post Meiji Japanese Samurai and The Last Samurai, Matthew McConaughey as civil rights lawyer in A Time to Kill, and Amistad, Emma Stone as Southern Girl writing a Munificent Exposé in The Help, Sandra Bullock um, in The Blind Side, all represent characters whose innate sense of justice drives these tales of racial cooperation, non-white uplift, and white redemption. These narratives help repair what is truly the most dangerous myth of race, a tale of normal and natural white paternalism. And, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I had to look up paternalism to make sure I was understanding <laughs> it correctly. So I'll just say it quickly in case our listeners was like, I want to make sure I'm fully kind of observing this. And it's the policy or practice on the part of people in positions of authority of restricting the freedom and responsibilities of those subordinate to them in subordinate supposed best interests. So it's saying that what these films do in, is help repair, right, a, a dangerous myth they're pointing out, which is that this is a normal and natural practice that occurs. Like this person coming into this situation whatever background is is doing this this paternalism right this being in a position saying this is the right way this is where you're going wrong this is your way out this is how i see a better world for you and kind of what the dangers of that and i guess i found that interesting in that when you're finishing a film like the blind side for example and i just say that cuz it's i think one of the ones up there yeah and it's a good feel-good story that is true and had a good real ending for the person and in the film. What is that narrative doing if your source of those stories are only through these type of films? Which I think is something true to some people, right? And that you're getting these stories from just these films. And maybe when you go home in your town, your area, that's, that's your reflection of race. That's kind of like where you're absorbing things. What... What is the danger of what it's conveying? Is it just a feel-good story? Or are you watching it, maybe not having any black people in your life, and I certainly know people that that's true for, what is that telling you when you finish it? Are you just thinking that's a good story of people working together? Or does that kind of flavor an opinion versus other people that that's not true for? So are you are you saying that kind of in in your everyday life, if you don't have exposure to these types of things, if you're watching the movie, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, okay, this is this is how it should be, and it's formulating their opinion in a positive or 
a negative way where now they're seeing that that's the only option or the way it should be or something that just innately happens? I think if you're, if I'm thinking in place of a person that is predominantly white area, that's who I went to school with, that's what I grew up with, that's my friends, that's what my life reflected upon as me. And I see a movie like this, it's not always the assumption that I'm gaining more information about the black people or non-white people being represented in the film and what they're going through. I think you're seeing it, you can easily see it in a lens of, oh yeah, see, we're helping this person, we're helping this group, or yeah, look, look, look at what we've done. And that can, that can skew how you look about people that are different than you just in this film. And I think that's what's interesting about feel-good films in general outside of white savior films or what you think may fall into that, of why it matters to look at them, I guess, with a more critical eye than other feel-good films. And I think that's kind of the crux of this whole thing is you want to make sure you have proper representation Mm -hmm. in the production team, on the director's squad, in the movie, um, talking to people that are familiar with the situation, if it is a based on a true story, you're talking about people that have had similar experiences, mm-hmm. if it is original story, so that you are accurately representing those scenarios on film and you're not just whitewashing it mm-hmm. to make, make everything look like, oh, it's all peachy keen, we helped this person out, here we go, and now everything's better, as opposed to kind of the different perspective of, the struggles, like in The Blind Side, for instance, they, they went into it a little bit, but it's told from Sandra Bullock's perspective for the yes. most part. So mm-hmm. it's a lot of that, I'm bringing somebody out of a tough area, I'm helping them out. But, you know, if it's told completely in the other perspective, right, it's, I basically am going to this new family, I'm struggling, I don't know how to deal with this, this is a completely different scenario. And it changes the entire tone. Mm-hmm. of the film if you just change the perspective of of the main character there and to avoid kind of that whitewashing situation you want to have people that can um reflect on it and react and give honest feedback while filming and writing and mm-hmm. everything like a happening. check-in exactly yeah like a check and like, balances yes like what a constant check-in i think of what is my story like what do i hope audiences are being received when they watch it Mm -hmm. and kind of what are, you know, what are the ways it can be interpreted? I think it's something to think about with spotlighting these stories, because there's a lot of blindside type stories I'm sure out in the world. And this is just a big one. Right. And I'm sure there's an opposite or reversal, right? A racial reverse Mm -hmm. in, in real life too. When you compare the amount of one way and the other, right. It's probably significant in terms of big cinema. What, type of story is is it usually well and that gets back to oscars so white right mm-hmm. it's it's old white men making the decisions old white men doing a lot of the directing old white men that mm-hmm. are writing a lot of the checks for these movie studios and they are more likely to choose a movie and i have no obvious backing of this besides you know all of history right. but that they're going to be more likely to back a movie where it shows somebody that they can see and be like, oh, I can kind of understand where that person's coming from in themselves right. as the hero as opposed to it being reversed. And and as kind of time goes on and you get more diversity into these kind of power-making positions, that should hopefully start mm-hmm. to shift, you know? 
I think that's definitely the hope. I think people are looking more critically at these type of films and just films in general, right? Mm -hmm. More now than ever. And especially like who's behind the camera, who's behind, you know, and, and I'm interested in, in reading and listening and seeing those, those, because I never go to a film thinking like, where am I in this film? It is always a delight when I'm like, I relate to this character yeah. <laughs> or like, that's me. But I am, and I think you are too, are love movies for movies. And, and like I said, it's a bonus when you do, but it's not like the thing that pulls me in is like, where am I in this film? Completely you know? agree. I like to get lost in the story yes. when I'm watching a movie and I don't necessarily look for where I relate the most. Mm -hmm. Like you said, unless something jumps out to me immediately. Right. right. Um, like yeah. on the Batman. Basically. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, I thought that too. I was like, that reminds me of Justin, you know, he's lighting the Emo torches angst. and freeing people. Yeah, <laughs> yep. So, yeah, and the eye makeup you wear all the time. So, exactly, yep. <laughs> the billions of dollars I have, the basics. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, any other thoughts kind of on this, this genre that you wanted to touch on? I mean, a, a lot of it's just how people f feel for themselves and how they read and learn and interpret stuff. You know, everyone's yeah, kind of welcome to an opinion. It's a nuanced conversation. You know, there's no right or wrong answer here. Everybody is, uh, has the right to have their own, own opinion on things. It's just, I would just say to all the listeners and everybody, just don't shoot down something because of the perception you think it gives off without giving it a shot, you know, make sure if there's a movie you're like, oh, that I'm too woke for that. That seems like that's going to be way not like the type of thing I'm interested in. Maybe you, you give it a shot. Maybe you see a different side of it after you watch it. You know, you can formulate different opinions when you give things an opportunity instead of just basing it off of the sole, uh, you know, motto that it's running with. I completely agree. And I, I can reference my own experience with seeing Jojo Rabbit. Um, during Oscar season two years ago, mm -hmm. I had heard the discourse around it and kind of the parts in it that seemed problematic to me not having seen it. And I was completely reluctant to watch it. Didn't want to watch it, but was dedicated to trying to see all the best picture nominees. And when I finished, I was delighted. I was like, actually, I think this is a really interesting take on this tough subject matter. And I was surprised. And so it would be hard for me to see something that's a no unless it's dinosaurs, yep. you know? Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, like let yourself be open because if it's bad, think about why it's bad. And that can be interesting too. Yeah. With all the information and podcast and articles and everything out nowadays, sometimes if you dig too much into a movie or a book or a TV show before you watch it, you don't formulate your own thoughts. You just take the most common thing mm -hmm. you read. And even if you don't realize it subconsciously, that's what you're thinking mm -hmm. when you're watching it. So you're, you're paying more attention to those items that were pointed out to you as opposed to just formulating your own thoughts and enjoying it for whatever it is. I totally agree. All right. So how about we get into our movies and whether they're problematic or not, shall we? <laughs> Let's do it.
All right, so let's talk about what films we assigned each other, why we assigned each other these films. So I'll start just by saying that you gave me Hardball, which is available on Paramount+, Plus, and I gave you Green Book, which is available on FX Now. Is that where you were able to watch it? I was able to watch it on demand through okay. my cable subscription because I am indeed a dinosaur and still have a cable <laughs> subscription. Hey, it worked, though, so you are able to get it. I'm okay. glad I texted you because I was very close to just renting it, and I was like, Kayla, give me another movie I have to freaking pay for. I put in our outline, but I had a little worry you weren't going to read it, so I'm glad I did you look texted through the outline, too. but I didn't think to check about You are notoriously bad at finding if movies are available for free before you buy them. So. That's because I have an app, and it didn't tell me that, but because FX is more of a cable thing, I guess. So yeah. God, I never think to just look at cable. <laughs> I, just Google. That's what I did. I go, where is... I go, where is Green Book available? And doesn't always work as I paid for Spencer and it was available on Hulu. I think it came out on Hulu like yeah, a I was day like, after oh, yeah, I watched it. Hulu. Damn it. <laughs> Classic. Uh, so why'd you assign me Hardball? Because it's awesome. Okay. It is, first of all, Keanu. You got to love yep. Keanu. It's a baseball movie, so it's one of my favorites. It's, it's a, I don't want to say a fun story. It's an interesting story that has... A lot of really awesome highs. It gets you invested in all the characters. And it's got a lot of real tough lows that when you watch it for the first time, even me watching it now, I've probably seen it 10, 15 times, is, you know, certain scenes still hit me the same way where I go, oh, man, I know it's happening, but I didn't expect it to happen. So I just thought it was, it had a lot of different emotions. And I was hoping that, some of that would hit with you. I was hoping to pick a movie you would enjoy and you'd get something out of. It's funny because I remembered seeing the trailer like when this movie first came 20 out. 20 years ago. 20 yeah. years ago, yeah. I just never ended up seeing it. So it was, I go, oh yeah, I forgot that was a movie that I could see. So um, I gave you Green Book, honestly, because I knew it was a recent one. So I thought it might be more interesting to you. And honestly, like we've seen a lot of the ones that we would have wanted to cover, I think. Like kind of going down the list, you know, just either was on TV or because we wanted to see them. So, yeah. So I gave you Green Book as like kind of a recent movie discussion. Yeah. And that Green Book had some uh, some controversies a couple Oscar years winner, ago at so. the Oscars. So it kind of lines up with what our podcast was about uh, the other day. Yeah. I have a movie in the past and you have one more in the future. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> it came out in 2018, out. but it's based in 1962. So, you know. Yeah, 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 you could tell. You know. So, all right, how about I start us off with Hardball, directed by Brian Robbins. Came out September 14th, 2001. Uh, not super star oh, wow, studded. Wow, it came out three days after 9 oh, yeah. 11? Yes. Oh, it shit. was not super star studded, I don't think. Most notably, Keanu Reeves, Diane Lane. I would say that's kind of it. And that's a young Michael B. Jordan. Yeah, but, you know, a lot of yeah. these movies were listing off 11, 12 people. I'm, I'd probably say that. Um, box office gross and budget. Budget was about $32 million, made $44.1 million in the box office. That's it? That's it. Oh. Rotten Tomato score, 41%. Bullshit. <laughs> Reception awards, there were none. What? Um, Should have won all of them. Should have won the Oscar that <laughs> yeah, year. Okay, okay. Fun or interesting facts. It was based on the book Hardball, Season in the Projects by Daniel Coyle. It was the feature film debut of Michael B. Jordan. So oh, his first film. Cool. All of the league's team names are taken from tribes in Africa. And Hardball and the Glass House 
another film, were both released on September 14th and were the first major motion pictures to be released after the terrorist attacks on September 11th. They both co-starred Diane Lane. She was in two movies out at the same time. Ooh, bad luck, Diane Lane, huh? So, okay. I'm ready for my plot line. I have a feeling I'm going to go over a minute. But yeah, there's a lot okay. that happens in it, and I'm probably going to go over a minute of mine too. Yeah, I but... just wanted to put that out there. So uh, let me know when it's time. all right, Kayla. Three, two, one, go. Connor O'Neill's a gambler who bets six thousand on his dead father's account is in debt to two bookies to repay them. His corporate friend says he has to coach a baseball team of troubled black fifth grade students, uh, kids from Chicago's housing projects for five hundred dollars a week. The kids trash talk a lot. Jarius, aka G Baby, is too young to play, so he becomes Connor's assistant. These nine kids on the team, Jamal's too old, G Baby too young, so he tries to befriend their teacher Elizabeth and some parents to get G Baby's older brother Kofi and another boy Miles on the team in exchange for tutoring. He gets the team to work together, but they lose the first game, which creates team fighting. He buys them pizza, and Connor tries to date Elizabeth while running away from bookies. He makes a twelve thousand dollar bet, but he's too stressed to stay coaching and quits the team when a rival coach points out stupid shit to get them to lose. His kids are mad and sad. He wins his bet and connects with the kids, realizes he likes working them. He gets second row seats to an MLB game, stops gambling, gets closer to Elizabeth, gets a team New Jersey's for absolutely fucking no reason when Connor drops off Kofi and G-Baby home. G-Baby is struck and killed by a straight bullet in Kofi's arms. This kid's legit six years old. This happened in the last five minutes of the movie. What the fuck? Connor wants to forfeit the game, but the kids, since they play G-Baby's memory, they win. Wow, Kayla. 56 seconds. Whoa. <laughs> that was rough. Yeah, that was... Uh... You probably could have summarized it. It starts kind of like Mighty Duck starts. I didn't see Mighty Duck, so I couldn't start oh off that way. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Disappointment every week, Kayla, <laughs> in you, one way or another. Uh, yeah. So, my first initial thoughts. And I have a lot to say and not a lot to say about the song at the same time. <laughs> Honestly, I will say I was on board with this film for most of the movie. Like, following along, kind of enjoying the, like, think shenanigans that happened. Of course, the concept of a white man who is down his luck with a gambling problem going to the Chicago projects to coach an elementary school baseball team is absurd as can be. Well, that that's just what Keanu does. Yeah. This is based on a true story. And I just love <laughs> Keanu Reeves. So he's generally a delight when I see him on my screen. I appreciate that they didn't try to freedom writers this film as far as having Connor Reeves like come in. He's like educating these boys, telling them how to get out. I find it to be kind of apathetic to their situation. Yeah. Like throughout the film, he's, he's mostly a selfish character for most of it. Yeah, he's not like the stereotypical quote-unquote savior. Right? Honestly, like... a little different. He he enjoys spending time with them is yeah. really what he gets. He doesn't, like, want to know more about their kind of situations, and he's not trying to, like, it, everything... Even the tutoring that he does to them is just to get on the team to get this money to stop his gambling debt. So I can appreciate how much of a savior, quote-unquote, he isn't trying to be in this film, necessarily. Yeah. Like, he, at the end of the movie, like, he enjoys being with the kids. That's what he likes with the kids. You know, it's not, like, trying to take them out of the projects. Yeah, that's that's fair. He does, you know, he starts helping them out a little bit here and there when he can, but it's never such kind of, like, an overt no, situation. No. Yeah. I mean, and in your quick recap, you obviously mentioned... One of the most shocking deaths oh, in we, the history of cinema. We are, we are going to talk about this. Yes, absolutely. Oh my! Just, I, just spoiler alerts. Uh, well, it's twenty years I, old, but <laughs> man, that gets me to this day. I tear up every single time. I'm gonna talk about my rage of that scene. Okay, when that's I, fair. Because right now I'm going to talk about the problematic things I found in this film. <laughs> so Michael B. Jordan is in this movie, and he's not for very long, in my opinion. I definitely have a problem, one, 
with his character Jamal has to leave because his mother fudged his birth certificate so he could be on the team, right? Yep. And this other team who just hates that they're winning is trying to find every loophole to kind of stop this team from playing or winning and points it out. So Connor has to tell him he's off the team, right? Poor Jamal, he's like tearing up. He storms off, right? Disappears from the movie. The next time you see him, he's a gang member. And again, this is fifth graders, just to paint a kid picture of this. They grew up in a rough area. Like instantly. Like instantly he becomes a gang member after being kicked off the team. So were the older gang members waiting for him outside of his house? Like as soon as he had his jersey, like can't, can't, not this time. We'll get you next time. And then as soon as he's like, I'm done with baseball, they're like, you're in. I think it's, hey, he's not busy practicing and doing this baseball thing. So what else is he going to do? He's probably standing around projects where he was living and they're like hey you're freaking here you're not doing anything else you need to hop on with us yeah i found that jarring i found i found fifth grade arguably he's a year older so i don't know if he's still in fifth grade but like where his birthday fell out he's close or he's a sixth grader at most i don't know but still jarring to me that the jump was from like off the baseball team to in a gang um okay sixth grade that's the time okay (laughs) then also, Keanu Reeves has never been whiter than when he wraps a Big Papa. So that was an amusing Big moment. Big Papa, in the bar. what a great movie and just great <laughs> it was overall just, scene. It was so like, this is the first time he's learned this song was for this movie, uh, which was okay. My next point Jefferson, who's kind of like the chubbier kid on the team, as always, chubbier kid has to be the comedic relief. So that's what he is. Yeah. Other than G Baby. So he has a scene where he has to walk home alone. Clearly, from a writer's perspective, this scene is to show you like, how the projects are like they're scary almost as sad as the g-baby scene oh (laughs) so jefferson's scene is that he has to walk home alone because he normally has one of his friends walk with him they can't he asks connor cattery's character to walk him he's he keeps him late and he's like no just walk home so this kid's terrified walking home to his place in uh, like an apartment complex understandable i'm on that journey i'm with the understandable he's fifth grader okay what was confusing is this weirdest thing where he runs to like a building, which I was assuming he was going to run to his door or try to run to his door. But like he then gets scared from like the people standing around. And I will say some like call out to him, but nothing like mean yet, just like getting his attention. Yeah. And then just people standing around like he's terrified of that. I don't Well, he's they're all twice his age. Uh, yes. I would have to assume he's been living here for most of his life, perhaps. I don't know. that, But so he gets to the, then he's kind of scared of the adults standing around. So he runs out of the building. So I go, oh, maybe he doesn't live there. But why is he going to this building if he doesn't live there? Yeah. Then he runs to like another building and then is like kind of scared of like the people around. Then he hides in the middle of this, like, it's kind of like a middle grassy area between apartment complexes. Okay. He hides in like a broken playground that's kind of in the middle of this area and hides for like a little bit and then he attempts to go back into a building in the same area and then he gets jumped by these older kids and they take his backpack i i just didn't like does he live there like is he in a completely wrong area and he was just going to a building it was very confusing i didn't i didn't feel like there was any sense of like like, how long has he, like, I question, how long has he lived at this place? Like, is there no sense of community? Like, I know a lot of apartment Clearly complexes are no like, there's no sense of community But there. there's no, like, that's so-and-so's kid. Like, 
he's a fifth grader. Like, I just found it so weird that all the people in this area were just like waiting to get him if he ran, they ran past him. It was just, I didn't find that to be 100% copacetic to me. And then I was just confused at why he's running building to building and not trying to run into his house. I remember the hiding. I don't remember him ping-ponging back between buildings like that. I'll have to rewatch that yes, scene. Yes, because I was just like, what's going... Where does he live? Is this... What is I happening? I do know my anxiety, his entire walk home, watching it every time is through the roof. I'm like, oh my God, don't get... Don't when get he jumped, like don't has his little pizza and he's hiding in the tunnel, like, yeah. on, and then he throws the pizza. I'm like, he was so committed to keeping the pizza the whole time, yeah. but then just couldn't make it. So I was just very confused by the fact that no one recognized this kid walking home. I'm I getting just, sad already, you talking about it. It's just ruining my mood right well, now. Well, it's going to keep coming. Because my last irritation with this film is... They had to do it, Kayla. No, 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 they didn't. And I'm going to argue that they didn't. I know they didn't. (laughs) We're going to get to the most outrageous problematic parts of this film. For absolutely no fucking goddamn reason, in the final minutes of the film, I want to iterate that this event happened in the last few minutes of a film that was about to end. This is what happened. Made you remember the film. They kill off the youngest member of this team in the most traumatic way. And I want to establish again that this team is a bunch of fifth graders. Okay. So that's the age. This kid is even younger. Six. He's like three foot tall. Yeah. He's like six years old. Okay. Talks like an adult, but he's the littlest of the group to the point where like he doesn't play on the team. Ripsy baby. Okay. He dies in his fifth grade brother's arms. Again, this happens in like the last five minutes. Okay. What the hell? I was stunned. Stunned. My jaw was on the floor. I couldn't even concept the emotional fallout of such a scene because it was so jarring that this so unnecessarily happened. And the, not the worst part because that's a terrible part in general. But right before, right, he was actually got to play in the game and got on base. Oh, and we're like, going we're gonna to chat oh, what things right. I would change. <laughs> so, again, I haven't felt this upset about unnecessary death on my screen since the 100 killed off Lexa. And if you don't think that was a big deal, it stemmed a massive media outrage about kill your gaze trope in media. So that was a big deal when it happened. Again, pointless death. Why did they kill? Okay. Reasons why sometimes you kill a beloved character, right? And he was a sarcastic little kid, right? Is to create an emotional change in a character, right? The death, an example would be this happened middle of the film. He was about to leave the team. This happened. He returns back. He realizes, like, I need to stop gambling. Like, this is what matters. Oh, okay. But makes a little more sense to me. He already had that. He had the whole emotional discovery of, like, actually enjoy being with these kids, I'm not going to gamble anymore. I want to work on this relationship with this teacher, Elizabeth. He already had that. This was the end of the film. There was no emotional kind of thing that he needed to see to realize what he was meant to do. He came back to return to this team to coach. Okay. They have this funeral moment. When the funeral happens, the mom asks Canary's character, Connor, to come up and tell a story about G-Baby. So sad. Small, small little kid coffin. I'm hysterical because at that point, the yeah. emotions did hit me. I know. I feel like I cry at every movie these days. No, but if you don't cry at this, you're a psychopath. It's true. Because I've gotten over the shock, and now I'm just crying at any yep. funeral scene ever. So he tells the story of how the game before, G-Baby, who's, again, little, they let him swing the bat, and the other coach was like, oh, yeah, let this little kid play and lose. Like, he wanted it to happen. He, he ends up hitting the ball, 
and winning the game because of his hit, and they were able to get to base or home G-baby. base or whatever. And he's like triumphant. This little G-baby kid is like, yes, yes, yes. And he tells that story as he chokes up. Please tell me why you couldn't have the same emotional response if, let's say, he didn't die as he never should have. And you just show the championship game where that happens. You're getting the same emotional expression of, wow, they, you know, like a Rudy, okay? Like, finally they put him to bat, he played, and that's the end of the movie. You get the end credits. It makes no sense how they did this. And tell me it's not a better movie if they don't kill him and do that scene where he hits the button. And you actually get to see it in real time as they win the championship game. Tell me how that's not a better ending than what they did. My counter here, and I agree, it is, like, we're not overselling this. This is one of the most shocking deaths in TV or movie history. It is baffling that it happens. You think he kind of survives at first, but a stray bullet gets him, and and you're like, what the hell? My counterpoint, what if it's the director, the writer's way of saying, hey, even though they have gotten to this kind of peak in baseball and they're working with Keanu Reeves and they're happy on the diamond. These kids are still living in rough areas. They still have to go home. This baseball team does not save them from their everyday struggles that they're dealing with. So maybe it was a way to show that not everything's copacetic here because they do have to go back to their normal lives after the baseball season. And this is always going to be a danger thoughts. That is the, that is the glimpse of something I tried to pick at this action that was so horrible. I was like, clearly this is showing, like, this is what its life is like in the projects. Like, you get shot. Like, yeah. there are little kids walking home. This is Also, that whole scene is just insane. But I knew as soon as Kofi's like, all right, let's get up. It's like the Jack and, and freaking what's her name in Titanic. Rose. Like, yeah. yes. You know, like, all right, Jack, let's, we're about to get rescued, you know. <laughs> um, so I knew immediately, like, oh, God, this kid's done. The film had already showed that in so many ways through, like, Jefferson getting lost in the area. Also, I would like to say Jefferson gets lost in his backpack taken in a neighborhood I assume he lives in. Keanu Reeves, the only white person I ever see in this area, drops off a kid and leaves and just nothing. (laughs) Not, Not one person looks at him and just does anything. Okay, cool. You, It was peppered so many different things in this film i just felt like that wasn't the thing that made you go wow where they're at is real i got that throughout the film i didn't need him to die that's a fair point and i just don't think it's a better story if we don't do it the other way i said and for that reason i was just so like like i said stunned because this happened again the last few minutes of the film yeah uh i I don't know know i love to cry like you know i love a good emotional it does it makes the film memorable, but not for the right reasons. Because yes. every time you bring up Hardball to somebody that's seen it, their first reaction is like, oh, gee, baby. You know, and every single time. So I don't really know what they were going for there. I would recommend you listen to the rewatchables on it because they mm-hmm. do a little bit of a deeper dive. And they obviously have a long discussion. Good. As it scene. should. Yeah. Justice for G, baby. Is all I'm saying. Justice for G. And so baby. that's that's kind of my last piece on Hardball. <laughs> so those were kind of the problematic things I saw upon watching it. But like I said, for the most part, it's kind of a crazy premise. But I was along for the ride. All right. Well, I'm glad at least it was an interesting movie for you, Kayla. Now, uh, since you took up most of our uh, podcast time, yeah, here, I'm sorry, have I have to, a lot of anger. <laughs> I'll run through Green Book pretty quick. 
All right, so Green Book. Green Book is a 2018 PG-13 film. Um, it ran two hours, ten minutes. It was directed by Peter Farrelly. Uh, writers were Peter Farrelly, Brian Hayes Curie, and Nick Vallelonga, uh, the son of the main character in the film. Had a budget of $23 million, and it did a domestic box office of $85 million and worldwide about $322. Rotten Tomatoes was uh, 77 for critics, 91 for audience. And the basic premise of this is, the as it's called, Green Book. It's based on the Negro motorist Green Book, a.k.a. the... Negro's Traveler's Green Book, published between 1936 and 1966, which just helped African-American folks find lodging and restaurants as they were traveling through the South and obviously a very divided time. So this movie won a lot of awards. Most notably, it won Best Picture at the Oscars in 2019, very controversially, uh, but it won over Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, which shouldn't have been on that list at I all. I mean, yes, that's a whole yeah. other pod. The Favorite, Roma, A Star is Born, and Vice. So the favorite going into this was Roma or A Star is Born. So Green Book kind of snuck in and, and won it. A lot of people weren't very happy with it, but we'll talk about that a little later. Uh, Mahershala Ali won Best Supporting Actor. And it won Best Original Screenplay. So the cast for the film is uh, Vigo Mortensen plays the main character, Tony Lip. And then Mahershala Ali plays Dr. Don Shirley. And then we also have uh, Lindy Cardellini plays Dolores. She's just amazing in everything she does. And those are the three kind of main actors. Everybody else is just pretty much a side part throughout the film. And if you want to get ready to time me up, Kayla. Yep. I can do my quick recap. Okay, so three, two, one. Struggling middle-aged white guy in 1960s Bronx is looking for work after his club he works at gets closed down for a couple months. You throw in a random scene just to show that he's racist. He gets a job offer to drive a genius black musician, Dr. John or Don Shirley, around on tour for two months conveniently. Starts out contentious, but Dr. Shirley knows he needs someone who can handle uncomfortable situations and protect him when needed. Doc is lonely in his own trio. Stakes get higher and higher as they get deeper and deeper into the South. Tony actually enjoys his music and sticks up for him when needed. Doc jumps into, gets jumped at a white bar trying to get a drink. Tony to the rest. Doc helps Tony write letters back to his wife, considering Tony is basically illiterate. Uh, they get pulled over for no, no reason down south. Tony punches a cop. They go to jail. But don't worry. Doc calls Bobby Kennedy to get them out. Doc refuses to play at the last spot because he, they won't allow him to eat in the dining room, make a stand. Tony stands by him. They leave. They go to this awesome black restaurant. Instead, Doc hops on stage and absolutely crushes it on some really old shitty piano, then has the most fun he's had in a long time, riffing it with some other random musicians at the bar. They get pulled over again on their way home. But hey, this time the cop's actually a nice guy who's symbolizing hope as you get farther north. Doc drives the last few hours to make sure that Tony gets home in time for Christmas. Tony invites Doc over to meet his family and a happy ending. The end. Minute and 10 seconds. Ah, so I close. I stumbled a little bit at the beginning there. <laughs> so, you know, it's not the premise of this movie is not too much to work with, right? Mm -hmm. It's based on a true story, uh, you know, based on as they obviously took some liberties here. But you have this guy, Tony, who's kind of down on his luck trying to, uh, you know, pay rent with his wife and his kids. And he gets offered this job to drive this genius musician around, uh, played by Mahershala Ali. 
It pays a hundred bucks a week. He talks him up to 125 a week for eight weeks. Very convenient that this tour lasts eight weeks and his club that he works at is closed for two months. Hmm. Interesting how that works out. I looked that up, the conversion rate. That $125 a week is over $1,000 a week in today's money. Whoa. So this guy got paid like 10 grand to go on tour for two months with this uh, awesome musician. So um, that's the, the main premise, obviously. He, he's an Italian-American. He, you know, he's a little racist, not too over the top. Just, but a, just a tad bit. Just a tad bit. You know, they throw a little scene in at the beginning to show that. Nothing too overt. You know, he throws out some glasses that uh, his wife has people o- over helping, I think, a dishwasher or something in the kitchen, and they drink out of a glass, and he throws them in the trash. And you see that she's a good person because she takes them out of the trash and says, screw this guy, basically. Um, so, you know, it was it was an interesting story. I understand uh, why it got the white savior kind of note with it. It's Mahershal Ali's character is going around performing in all these really fine establishments through the South by choice. He's this really renowned musician, has played at the White House, and he needs basically a white guy to escort him around, drive him around, and handle business when it needs to be handled. Because he Mm -hmm. knows things are going to get uncomfortable. He knows things are going to get physical on the travel. And he needs somebody that can stand up for himself and basically bullshit his way through situations when he needs to. Which kind of is funny when they're driving early on in the film, you have Dr. Don Shirley's talking like, oh, you know, Tony, what do you do? Yada, yada. And Tony's like, well, you know, they call me the best bullshitter in town or some something innocuous like that. Yeah. And then uh, Dr. Shirley is just like, why, why are you proud that you're a liar? He's like, well, I'm not a liar. I'm, I'm a bullshitter. He goes, so you're proud that you just bullshit people? He's like, how the hell do you think I got this job then, Doc? Like, yeah. it's kind of a funny relationship. I actually laughed out loud a few yeah. times throughout the movie because there were comedic elements to it. You know, it it was trying to show a time in history. You know, 1960s South was not a very friendly time. Uh, you had a lot of very uncomfortable moments. Mm-hmm. in the movie where he's not allowed to go to the same hotels or restaurants. And as you get deeper South, it gets worse accommodations, worse situations for him to go into. He gets jumped at the bar when he's trying to get a drink. It, you know, it definitely was like cringeworthy to watch mm-hmm. at moments, but yeah, I think you need to have some of those moments in these types of movies to, to show this is kind of how it was like, you know, like, it may not, not be that long ago. Too. Yeah. This is, <laughs> 60 years ago. Yeah. This We're not talking hundreds of years ago, and this stuff was happening. You know, we've come a long way. We're still not perfect, but look where we were 60 years ago. I will say a couple things that I really noted as I was um, watching the movie were comments from Tony's character, which seemed a little, a little much. He goes, mm-hmm. uh, hey, I'm, I think I'm blacker than you are. You don't know shit about your own people when he's talking about fried chicken, Aretha Franklin, um, little Richie, like, and he was like, my people, what the hell are you talking about? You know? And understandably. So doc, doc is pretty, uh, I've heard someone say that in real life too. So that, that's a little like, yeah, that's, you know, that's, uh, that's a little rough. Uh, you know, the, the guy that, um, Vigo is playing here, Tony, Tony lip. I wonder if he was really, this way in real Mm -hmm. life 
he is basically illiterate in this movie. He's street smarts. He can bullshit his way out of anything. You know, he can fight. He was a bouncer for a club. He beat the crap out of somebody to start the movie. But he can barely formulate sentences. And he is writing back to his wife on the road and is like, hey, I ate food today and saw Doc go perform. And he they use big words, the things I don't know. And like he's writing and maybe they have letters that he actually mm-hmm. wrote back to his wife and they use that. And hopefully that's the case, because otherwise I don't understand why you would try to, you know, dumb down the character more. But you could tell right off the bat, OK, he's going to basically get educated and mm-hmm. learn about some of these high class things and how to formulate sentences and have thoughts from Doc once they start right. developing a bond, which which is an awesome moment when he's like, all right, Tony, let me see this damn letter you wrote. He's like, this, what the hell is this, yeah. man? Like, tell her what you t- tell her what you want to say to her and, and kind of walks him through how to write love letters. Mm-hmm. And almost tells him exactly what to write a few times. And the wife's back home and is like bragging about these letters Tony yeah. is writing. They're calling him Shakespeare and making fun of him yeah. at home. And when uh, she actually meets Doc at the very end of the movie, which is a super touching scene, she just like hugs him. Like, you know, she doesn't care. There's a black man in her house for Christmas. She walks up, gives him a hug and goes, thank you helping him write those letters like yeah, yeah. i i know he didn't come up with yeah. that himself didn't like go come from on. like i ate soup for dinner yeah to, yeah you know, <laughs> my dearest rose yeah <laughs> you're all i think about and i just want to love you every moment the rest yes, of your yeah, life yeah. after so i ate a hamburger yesterday yes. <laughs> talk pretty, later bye it was uh it was pretty funny um uh my favorite scene in this movie has to be when at the end of the movie they're at the uh you know the black bar and restaurant and he looks up at the stage, uh, you know, Doc, and he's talking to the waitress or bartender. And she's like, oh, what do you do? And he's like, you know, I you know, play music. And Tony's like, no, he doesn't. He's the best damn pianist there is around, like in the world. And she's like, oh, really? Go play something. And he looks up and sees this old, decrepit, you know, piano. And he's got such high class taste. He's like, I only play on certain types of pianos at certain they have to be tuned a certain way. Like, this is just how I play. But he lets his hair down for the first time, goes up, and just starts ripping it on the piano, yeah. crushing it. It's such a fun scene. Then you have somebody come up with a sax and some other stuff, and they just start riffing up there on stage, and Tony's loving it. The whole bar is loving it. That was just a, a really kind of fun scene, mm-hmm. I think, especially to close things out on on a, a bit of a, a tough topic of a movie. And then... You know, how thoughtful he is on the drive home. You, he knows that Tony's trying to get back to his family for Christmas. His wife was like, get get back for Christmas. And he just can't drive anymore. Tony is like falling asleep at the wheels. Like, I'm sorry, Doc. I can't do it. We need to pull over. And then he wakes up at home because Doc drove him the last couple hours to make sure he got home in time. And, mm, yeah. and then obviously... The, the story is they remain friends for a long time following this movie. So that's the movie. Anything you want to throw in about the specific movie before I get into the actual controversies and stuff surrounding it? No, that it? was a good, like, painted picture. Mm-hmm. Like, it was very much like a moment in time. Like, showing you the South. They're showing you, like, what was going on at the time and the relationship between these two people. So I think you... Yeah, I just... I could not imagine being in Doc's position 
at that time or any time really where he is just this brilliant musician. He knows it. Everybody knows it. But he has to go through life basically having people let him do things that everybody else can do without any question. He's got to be on all the time and he has to restrain himself at all times and he can't slip up. He can't make one mistake because shit hits the fan so quick. Hey, he wants to go get a drink. He gets jumped. Tony's got to come kind of save the day, hence the white savior kind of mentality here. But that just has to be so exhausting. He's in this trio. He's the head of it. He's got PhDs and everything under the sun. And then there's two white guys in the trio too. And they're out having fun going to these dinners. And he's sitting by himself drinking hard liquor at night because he's got nobody to share the experience with until, you know, Tony starts kind of filling that void Mm -hmm. later on in the movie when he's like, don't go anywhere without me. Like, don't trust anybody down here. I need to be by your side at all times. So it... It definitely, uh, I really enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would, especially kind of like we we talked about earlier. You hear all the different pieces about why people weren't a fan of this movie and it kind of paints your own picture before you you saw it. But they had a scene in this film where Doc thinks Tony's going to leave because he's talking in Italian to some people he met, he knew back from the Bronx. And they're like, hey, I'll give you work. Why are you working with this guy? What the fuck is this? Like, come Mm -hmm. work for us. And he's talking in Italian. And as the viewer, you're like, you know, Doc speaks Italian. Doc speaks. He mentioned Russian earlier. He definitely speaks Italian. And when he talks to him later, because he tries to sneak out to go talk to the the guys he met, um, you have Doc come out and go, in Italian, like, oh, where are you going? And he's like, oh, shit. It's like, no, I, I'm just yeah. going to tell them. Uh, he's like, are you taking the the job? And you can see just Mahershala Ali, just perfect so acting. Good. Just his eyes and his mannerisms. And he's, he's just trying to keep Tony to stay, you know? And he's just like, hey, you know, you've been doing great. I think I can give you a raise. It's going to come with more responsibility, but, you know, it'll come with more money. Essentially begging him to stay. Mm-hmm. And the best part is when Tony just goes, Doc, 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 stop. You hired me for 125 a week, right? That's what it is. I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you. I'm going there to tell them I'm not taking their job offer. I'm like, that was a super sweet, touching moment. I don't know if that happened in real life. I doubt yeah. it, but probably more for cinema. But I, uh, I was really touched, you know, almost teared up a little bit there. Oh. Mostly because Mahershala Ali just played this character to perfection. This person, he, he like just embodied the person that I imagined uh, Dr. Yeah. Uh, Don Shirley to be. He's so... Fun. Have you seen Moonlight? I've not. I, that that yep. movie is high up in, in my regard as like a, a just almost perfect film. Just in, in the styling of it. And I... That was the other very controversial Oscars uh, night yes. when Moonlight beat La La Land. And, you know, I love vampires, so I can't wait until he plays Blade uh, in future Marvel. Oh, is he doing yes, that? Yes, he's, he's Blade. Yep. He's better than Blade. Get out of here. He's Mahershala Ali's better than Blade. <laughs> but we I can't, can't have all these awesome it. actors playing freaking movie star or uh, playing uh, superheroes bullshit. Anyway, side tangent there. <laughs> um, a couple fun facts about the movie. Um, Vigo Mortensen gained 50 to 60 pounds for the role to play uh, Tony Lip. And in that scene at a diner where he gets challenged for 50 bucks to out eat this other guy, uh, you know, I forgot his name, big 
it was like a big toady or something like yeah. a stereotypical Italian name. And uh, it was like, who can eat the most hot dogs in 10 minutes? And he, cr- his character crush is 26. The other guy goes 24. So he wins 50 bucks, which is about 500 bucks in today's um, money. And goes home and is telling his wife the story. And she's like, you lost 50 bucks? He goes, no, I beat him. Here's rep for the month, baby. He actually ate 15 hot dogs in that scene. Like, in the filming, he was like, no, I want to actually eat this. So you can just see, like, the disgust and, like, oh, how full he was. Imagine. Yeah, it was a little ridiculous. Uh, they say Vigo was very insecure about portraying an Italian-American because he is not Italian. And he does speak Italian, though, so he kept turning down the role, and they're like, no, we really want you to play it. We really want you to play it. So he eventually was like, okay, but I'm going to put on a whole bunch of weight and really dig into this character. Uh, Most of his family members in the movie are actual family members of Tony Lip. So that's kind of a little Mm. fun fact, like when they're at the house doing the, the family dinners. And Doc Shirley's chess set has no black squares or pieces. Fun fact. Oh, interesting. Interesting, right? I need to like look up a freaking photo of this. I saw yeah. this and I was like, I, I want to see this chess set. It must be pretty sweet. So now to the controversies. So a lot of stuff kind of surrounded this film, white savior film. People were noting that it didn't do a good job representing the actual facts. I read a few articles on this. I can't make heads or tails. You have family members saying, They never reached out to us. We wanted to provide input. You have uh, people on the actual production team saying we reached out to multiple family members. Nobody wanted to provide any guidance. Mm -hmm. We talked to people who would. Then you have family members saying they were never even friends. But then there's audio of Don Shirley actually saying, yes, we we were not employee, employer. We were more than that. We were friends. It's all over the place. It's tough to get a real picture on how accurate it was because they both passed away in 2013, months from each other, which is a little odd. But I enjoyed the movie. You know, I think kind of it being taken down for being the white savior film is a little overdone based on the research I did and and the way I saw the movie. The way I saw the movie was Dr. Shirley was kind of the... You had Tony had to protect him in ways, but what Shirley did for Tony was way more than what Tony did for Shirley. Well, I think that's one of the controversies. Like, one of the things people are saying against the movie is that kind of like we referenced at the top of the hour with the, like, magical Negro stereotype, right? Like, I'm educating you. Like, I'm here, the voice, to turn your life around. And they said that Doc was that figure in this film. Yeah, and he, he was that figure. And that just brings me back to when it's based on a true story, if you want to tell the story accurately, and again, you know, who knows if it was told mm-hmm. very accurately, that's that's who they were. Like, he was this very successful black man, and Tony was this kind of undereducated Bronx, st- typical Italian-American who bullshits and fights his way out of trouble. And they kind of connected, and they built a bond, and I think the main theme of the movie is people from different backgrounds, different histories, they can develop a friendship and Mm -hmm. you work past the color of your skin and all of those, you know, kind of uh, cliche things, which that had more of an impact on me than the, you know, the, the magical uh, Negro portion of the film or the white savior portion of the film. It seemed much more like an authentic friendship was building and it wasn't 
they were just there to serve each other's needs, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, I think another thing that people took issue with was like the green book like they enjoyed the history of that and that but didn't like necessarily that tony was kind of the outlet of the green book Mm -hmm. like to talk about what it was and like he was one who had it and like was kind of that voice versus doc i was looking into a couple things on that because i saw that criticism where it's called green book it's based on the green book but you only see tony reference it a few times and some things i read were not a lot of uh you know, black people were using the green book back in those days. But then I also saw that it, they gave out 2 million something copies, which would you think there'd be some demand in the fifties and sixties of 2 million. Yeah, copies I, I, I would have thought that was so, reverse, you know, it's kind of some back and forth ones. Yeah. I don't know if it's a surely couldn't be bothered with it. So you need to figure out where we're going type of situation. But I did read some pretty solid criticisms that the real Green Book, Green Book had options for nicer establishments. Mm-hmm. They weren't all these rundown establishments that they seemed to focus on in the film once you got further south. Again, they kind of move around quickly once they get out of the northeast area. So they don't show you every city they stop in. So that could just be a reflection of they're showing you kind of the worst locations and not all of the locations. But it may have been nice to to throw in using the Green Book to find a nicer establishment or a nicer restaurant, you know, in there as a scene just to show that it had more of a use than just uh, the white guy saying, okay, here's this rundown motel you have to stay at. <laughs> there was a great show that unfortunately did not get a second season, Lovecraft Country on HBO, which you may be turned off because there's a bit of like supernatural, there is a supernatural element to it, but it is also another great betrayal of like, the Green Book, the South during that time, because it's it's kind of supernatural Lovecraft meets the realness yeah. of the reality of the situation then. So I, I did find that, that story interesting, like film set at that time. You know, there was supposed to be a TV series called Green Book that was going to come out mm. the same year that got nixed once the movie was announced. Oh, really? They were yeah, like, there could only be one. Yeah, it wasn't based on... Um, you know, Tony and uh, and Shirley, it was just about the, the actual Green okay. Book and how it functioned and how people used it at I'd that time. I still want to see that. So, yeah, I, from what I can tell, it never actually got made, unfortunately. Um, a couple other quick controversies here. Vigo Mortensen uh, said the N-word in a Q&A promotion. Yes, yeah. So you got to mention that. I will say the the context in which he did it, it, it was, hey, for instance, nobody says the n-word anymore you know still not okay to say it he vehemently apologized i think in that situation context matters a little bit he but it's still fucked up and he still yeah, shouldn't have said that, it. that's so, my like <laughs> that's, that, uh, yeah, that's my personal hard line but and, and, but and i can't did, really say much else yeah, about that yeah. you know what i'm saying so <laughs> i'll stop myself there uh kareem abdul jabbar a uh, former basketball player big uh, activist mm-hmm. he actually defended the movie saying well, such discrepancies from originality may irk family members. They don't really matter because those plot details are about getting you to the greater truth than whatever the mundane facts are. And one of those actual mundane truths was this journey took closer to a year than it did two months. But for the purpose of making this into a film, you cut the time window down mm-hmm. to two months. 
you kind of jam pack everything there and then it lines up with him losing his other job for a couple months while it goes through renovations or whatever it was so so i think you know that i don't see why that would be a problem to kind of shrink that timeline for the purposes of the movie and then a lot of people saying it just spoon-fed racism to white people so yeah (laughs) i'm a white person i said i like the movie so maybe it worked on me i don't know (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah um I mean, did you think first, did you think it was a best picture winner when you watched it? Like, did you? I understood why it was nominated a hundred percent. I think it deserved a, I'm okay with it winning. Honestly, I look at the other films. I really enjoyed the favorite. A star is born is good, but it's a remake from an older one. So I don't like when remakes of older ones win best pictures. Like why I wasn't rooting for West Side Story this year. So I I think that controversy about it winning is a little overblown looking at the other movies that year, but I could be in the minority there. What do you think? Um, I was kind of rooting for Roma. I enjoyed yeah. it, but uh black and white Netflix film. Yeah. You know, my fave. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it was I I understood the controversies and I I think that's what's interesting about these type of movies is that you can look at it from different viewpoints and critically and not, and yeah. just enjoy a film. And then you can look at it critically um, because so many parts of it are just outside of the relationship. What's true or not like taking out of that, the environment that is taking place was real. Yep. The situations I'm sure are true for a lot of people. So it's not, you know, those things aren't fabricated. Their examples are probably things that happen to many, many people. So I enjoy historical glimpse into something that's, a feeling kind of like you described that I'm sure people still feel, you know, not to the extreme of, of you can't go to this place, but that feeling of like, I, my, I'm not matching someone else. I, I fit all the same qualifications, but I'm not matching someone in this way. So yeah. it's, it, it's relatable in that way too. Like, where am I still seeing attributes of this? So to me, I would, I was still rooting for Roma. I was stunned. I was kind of with the crowd stunned at, uh, it wasn't a great best picture pool. I will say. Yeah, it was not not the best best pitcher pool. Like I said, I loved the favorite, yeah. but that was not by any means a favorite. To, to, <laughs> oh, there, yeah, to win. I do, I do. It was Roma and A Star is Born, and Green Book kind of snuck up as like the third favorite yeah, to take yeah. home the title. Yeah, okay. All right, any last thoughts on the Green Book? No, I like I said, I think it was a, a good movie, and I would recommend that people see it. Okay, all right. Um, how about we rate our films? So you want to start us off? I'll go first. I'm going to give Green Book four out of six VHS tapes. I enjoyed it. I wouldn't mind if it's on TV, you know, occasionally watching it again. Going into it, I thought it was going to be a lot drier, a lot Mm -hmm. more mundane. Like I said, it had comedic elements to it. It told a really interesting story. And the performances were really good Mahershala Ali way more than Viggo Mortensen but you know I'm a fan okay um I'm going to give hardball finally a six no 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 three out of six VHS tapes okay it was good I I was didn't wasn't like upset that I watched it that ending was just still angry about it (laughs) and I don't know if it's a rewatchable for me but uh you know it was like enjoyable to watch the time that I did, yeah. Okay, solid. At least yep. I got you above a two this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got me a three on this one. Okay, so 
It's now time for you to pick our next genre out of a hat. And I just want to say at the top, we are going to be not doing it every month like clockwork because there's so many great things coming out that we want to give the time and attention to those. But we'll still be doing these, you know, movie picks every so often to kind of yeah, have still, fun with each other. Still regularly, probably every like four to six weeks, just not a solid every, every month. Four yes. weeks, yeah. yep. What do we got? Weird as hell. Oh, that's a Ooh, fun one. Weird as hell movies. Okay, this could Ooh, this could be this could anything that we feel is very weird. Ooh, I got I got uh, I got a couple right off the top of my head. All right, I'm interested. Okay. Weird as hell. This will be fun. Yeah. All right, that's a good one. Good job. All right, so now let's get into our swarly of the week as we are going late on another movie podcast. Oh yeah. Okay, so our swarly of the week, and let's make it quick this week, Kayla. My swarly of the week is Uber. So Uber. Uber. You know the phone app? Yep. Uber, are you familiar? Yes. Okay. So Uber is now going to list taxis on the app in New York City to fuel growth. After all of this just constant bickering and contentious relationship between taxi cabs across the United States and worldwide with Uber, they are now working with them to fuel growth and they're going to be splitting fees with them. So you could, on the Uber app, get a cab if you wanted to. Yeah, so taxi drivers will be linked to the Uber app, and they will see a ride pop up with how much money it'll be worth, and they could decline or accept it, and it goes through the same payment system. And they will have their typical cab routes, too. So they could theoretically kind of do a little bit of a double dipping here. And I think this would probably only work in cities like New York, where... There's such a big taxi right. cab kind of population that it would work on. But I just thought that was so ironic that they fought so hard to have their own thing so that they wouldn't have to give into the taxi cabs. And now they're going to be sharing fees with the taxi cab, at least for a little while. Interesting. Yeah. Well, so, I guess if you can't beat them, join them. I think they did beat them, though. That's well, the thing. Yeah. I think they beat them and then they. That's true. And they probably got them at at a massive discount right now on fees and everything than they would have before. Yeah, I'm kind of curious on the... I want to see the breakdown of how they're going to separate out all the fees because they just got a huge influx of drivers for nothing, right? They don't really need to do additional... Especially with the different companies, too. Yeah. You know? So, uh, yeah, I don't know if it's restricted to certain companies. I assume ones that have been approved through the uh, New York City Taxi Cab Commission or whatever would be approved through Uber now, but I'm going to, you know, keep a tab on that to see if they actually do a breakdown of the finances. Yeah, Cause yeah. I think that'd be interesting. Okay. My story of the week is going to kind of relate to the Oscars in the person, as you know, the most cheer worthy, uh, number one, most cheer worthy moment picked by fans was the flash enters the speed force. Oh, such bullshit. But what I'm pointing out is Ezra Miller who plays the flash Right. And is soon to have his own solo film come out was arrested for (laughs) disorderly conduct and harassment in Hawaii. Apparently, he took a microphone from a 23 year old woman singing karaoke at a bar in Hilo late Sunday and then tried to attack a 32 year old man playing darts. He couldn't run away fast enough. He couldn't. He (laughs) did not enter the speed force. I mean, wild to me. Wild. Of course, talk about that on the pod. Just. Quickly on the Oscar I, pod, I think right? the slap just, you know, knocked it out of us. We couldn't even think of, you know, to that mention so that. But bad. that was top ridiculous. five memorable moments in 
freaking Flash was number one. Get Ridiculous. Uh, Cheerworthy? Yeah, right. So, again, I just find it so crazy that his movie's going to be out. He's recently in the Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore. That's about to come out next month. And he gets arrested at karaoke bar. You just you, you can't make this stuff up. So, Ezra Miller, you're my swarly. All right. So, what do we got for our friendship question of the week, Kayla? Our question is, what makes this friendship work the way it does? My constant compromising and uh, good-hearted attitude. Uh, okay. No, okay. not quite. Uh, a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, I think we do. We do have a good comp. We've. We've worked over the long course of our friendship. We are both very stubborn people. Yes. So I think we have started to understand our stubbornness where we will each give a little bit to the other and compromise, which is good. That's what you need in a friendship. Yes. I think you're right because we're so like, this is the way it has to be. Any lie that's like, no, we'll do it your way. That works. I try to find that moment. Um, And we're very similar. We work really hard. Maybe too much. We can call each other out on stuff when yes, needed, which yes. is helpful. You don't have to really, you know, walk on eggshells. And often we just know how our brains work at this point. I can look at you and know, like, yeah. what you're going to be upset by, what you're going to love. <laughs> uh, it's probably same. And so, you know, sometimes we can look and be like, yeah. Or just, yeah, general, okay, your body language. I can tell when you're just like, okay, I've had enough of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can't be doing this anymore. And I'm sure you can tell when I get in one of those just really annoyed serious modes where I just don't want to say a word and I'm just done with everybody around me. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's what happens. We've been friends as long as we have. So I think we just, I think time, we know each other so well. Yeah. So I think I that's just how we make it work. Cool. I'm glad we do. Cause we have podcasts, you know? Yeah. We do talk to each other. Yeah, we do. On this weekly plus all the other times and then all the other times after that yeah. and then D&D. And then... Like when I saw you a couple of days ago and I'm seeing you today and then I'll see you this weekend. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yep, yep, yep. cool. <laughs> all right, so on that note, that's it for today. See you next week. Well, that's it for this episode of Wrong Opinions Only. Please follow us on Instagram at Wrong Opinions Only and on Twitter at Wrong Opinions JK, where we'll be dropping some clues and hints to upcoming episodes. Until then, JK out.